Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. On the episode today, we have... G'day, I'm Nikki Shabak, co-founder of Startmeet and Blackbird. Can you give us a bit of an elevator pitch on Blackbird? Blackbird is a venture capital firm that invests right at the beginning of the most ambitious stories to come from Australia and New Zealand. And as a company succeeds, uh, we would love to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in those generational companies that, that truly reshape industries and problems that they're going after. You're a relationship first kind of, that's your investing philosophy, isn't it? Yeah, the the investment world is strangely oriented around the round of capital. So there's a seed round, a seed fund that invests in seed rounds. There's a growth fund that invests in growth rounds. And I guess the key for Blackbird is that we're an investor in generational companies, really the relationship with the company. That's the unit of our business. And whether it's investing $100,000 or $300 million, really it's through the lens of both of those decisions are the same thing if they're about that company that you know very, very well. This documentary that we're producing is all going to be all uh, try to tell as accurately as possible the history of the startup ecosystem in Australia. And uh, it seems to me that you have been around since pretty much day one. Is that fair to say? I would say I have been around since 2009, which I think was the beginning of a second wave of startups. So certainly in the dot-com uh, boom and bust of 1999, there was a whole first wave of, of the industry. But I think sort of the, the second generation or the, the current wave really began around that sort of 2009, 2010 period. That's really interesting. Can you, you know, you might not be able to answer this question, but what did you understand what the ecosystem looked like pre-2009? You know, the ecosystem didn't really exist, but 
what did it look like like from your perspective i think what, what was interesting is that you had a bunch of successful companies beforehand so atlassian was created in 2003 there was uh, uh, campaign monitor half brick studios redbubble akinx uh, the, these are all companies that were already successful in 2009 2010 yeah. and so even though you had great startups you didn't really have great investors or you didn't really have great other parts of the ecosystem alongside those companies but really the essential ingredient is successful companies and certainly there had been many in australia they were disparate they weren't talking to each other the sort of circle of life the the magic of silicon valley when someone creates a company invests and helps the next generation that moment hadn't happened but you had you know the beginnings of really successful companies is that what kicked off the second generation of, uh, of the ecosystem in australia that you know uh, and you've talked about this in the past but brad feld's book startup communities like that's what the premise of that book is about i'm as i understand it do you think that happened in australia uh, off the back of you know the atlassians and you know others like that yes absolutely it did i also think there was a shift from creating businesses that were the best in Australia to creating businesses that were the best in the world and had this global ambition mm. about them, uh, and particularly that as a catalyst, uh, and then certainly um, the way communities are built uh, from the bottom up, from the founders who create uh, successful companies passing on their knowledge and investing their money uh, into the next generation and helping them succeed. Really, that's the, the flywheel. As you said, Brad Feld's um, Startup Communities book perfectly summarizes it, uh, but essentially this circle of life of uh, a successful founder helping and investing in the next generation. Can you take us right back to when you first dipped your toe in the water? What did it look like when you first got involved in terms of community size different support structures that were out there at the time they're probably really non-existent but any government support what did just what did the landscape look like yeah my first steps into entrepreneurism came when i was at university so i had done a course called business information technology and there was sort of it was a scholarship course you got paid 200 dollars a week to to do it so that was the the reason why i chose it and in that course uh, there were about 40 people and it was an incredibly entrepreneurial um, group of people the course itself had nothing to do with startups or uh, anything like that it was to do with sort of information systems and at big companies and it, it wasn't entrepreneurial at all however in the in the course because it was very competitive to get in i think there was like 800 people who applied and 40 people who got it you had this sort of ultra competitive group of people and included in that were mike and scott from atlassian as well as a whole host of other uh, folks who've gone on to great success and so in university uh, Mike and I were uh, roommates at the time and we created a startup called the Bookmark Box we'd kind of been reading at the time there were magazines like the Red Herring and the Industry Standard these were like 300 page magazines and we'd go to the newsagent and grab them and like devour them in in a couple of days each time they were launched and we sort of caught this bug of the internet and created a company called the Bookmark Box. We had an office in the Australian Technology Park, which is actually uh, home to Startmate originally. So the circle of life there as well. We were in a really small office with a bunch of other companies. Those those other companies tended to be either say consumer internet, and I would say helmed by finance people. So MBA might have done McKinsey creating a sort of uh, financially driven company versus a uh, a product driven company. And I'd say that that change from the first generation of 
financially driven people versus product driven people was the big difference between say the 99 generation and the 2010 generation. It was still very much, I would say, an incredibly small amount of people. So even though the business news at the time was all about the dot-com boom, there weren't so many people in Australia that were creating a lot of startups. There was some activity, but it wasn't anything compared to um, today's activity. And then certainly, you know, 2002 to 2005, that nearly completely disappeared and what small activity there, there was. So I think the big change was the, the, the finance types originally got replaced by the, the product types in, the, in this generation. You just mentioned the you know first generation, the dot com. You're talking about the second generation product people. I, I think that's what that generation can be summarized as. Do you have an opinion on what the next generation of this of the startup ecosystem might look like? I don't. Um, I would say the more graceful upgrading is someone who is deeply technical and learning the business skill rather than someone with business fundamentals learning technology or learning products. And so. I think it's sort of a much healthier foundation to have incredibly technical people involved um, in the founding of companies. Mm. Uh, perhaps as technology becomes more and more accessible, so like if you rewound 40 years ago, you needed to you know, almost program in binary or hex code and you know, the, the programmer was this incredibly, incredibly technical person versus today the programming languages have come such a long way that it's accessible for anyone to learn how to code and it's more logical thinking than it is you know, memorizing technical sort of arcane programming. And so I think since programming is becoming more and more accessible, it goes to those with the most creative thought around product experiences. It goes to those who have the most creative thought around how culture is changing and how consumer and business behavior is changing. So it's probably a more creative person in the next generation that, that is the founder of companies. So Bookmarkbox exited that business in 1999. Startmate started 2010. Where did the idea for Startmate come from? When, when did it enter your brain? So shortly after selling the bookmark box to a company in New York, Mike and I both met a guy called Alan Meckler, who was the founder of Jupiter Media. And it had bought out a research and advisory firm called Jupiter Research. And Mike and I um, were invited to sort of incorporate the Australian operations. And then soon after that, I moved to New York to be with that uh, company. And then after that, started another company called Home Thinking, did that for a bunch of times. And so I had decided to move back to Australia um, that 2009 period. And really what struck me was all of the people that I'd met in the Bay Area, all of the people that I'd met in New York, compared to the people I'd met in Australia, the people in Australia were better or you know, at least as good as the all of the best people I'd met in America. And um, mm. even though that was the case, um, people still weren't paying attention to uh, those people in Australia. The people themselves didn't have much confidence that they were at that global standard. And so it was almost this... Australian kind of lost in translation movie of they just didn't quite have that confidence or that ambition to to give something a go and really it was that mismatch between you had all of the right raw ingredients of someone truly special and all you needed was um, a group of people to invest but I think like even investing money is just one form of giving belief to those people to give it a shot and to take a swing and that was really the premise of Startmate was bring together a group of people who had created technology companies and invest 
both money and time and belief in those raw people to you know take a swing at it and to to, to give it a shot yeah just this quick side note i love your linkedin about section it's just it's very short it's very to the point <laughs> taking a chance on the hungry not the proven how long has that been your kind of philosophy or is that just specifically blackbird's yeah. philosophy it has um, always been my philosophy. Um, just if you observe success, so look at all of the world's most successful companies from Microsoft and Facebook, where the founders didn't even finish university, or Google, they just finished university. There is sort of this misnomer that you learn business from a business textbook and you write a business plan and you need business experience. And mm. it somehow just doesn't square uh, with the reality of uh all of the world's biggest companies were founded by these completely unqualified, in inverted commas, um, uh, people who had never been a CEO before, they'd never hired someone before, they'd never done anything in business really. And so it was really that insight is actually the people who go on to great success looked incredibly unimpressive in the beginning. and. At the time, investors were looking for repeat founders with business experience and gray hair and all of this. We sort of have this joking phrase inside of Blackbird of safe pair of hands. As soon as someone says someone's a safe pair of hands, you almost guarantee that that person is not going to be a safe pair of hands. So it was really to say that um, all of the best business people had no business experience and um, were completely unqualified at the beginning. But what was obvious was all of these people had uh, a thirst for learning and you could almost observe this vertical learning curve in each of them such that even though you're betting on them when they were unqualified all you had to do is wait a certain amount of time and then they would be you know the celebrated ceos of jeff bezos and and, and so on and so forth so and also the outsiders you know bring about the change rather than the the sort of boiled frogs of the insiders um, who have grown up in an environment and accepted things and almost resign themselves to, to, to say that that's the way the world works versus like usually naivety is said in a negative way, but actually there's an incredible positivity to, to, to naivety where that fresh thinking, which is often wrong, but fresh thinking, which is sometimes right. And that's actually how the world changes. That's actually how things are done differently. And so I think always you know, seeing the Atlassian story up, up close and again, Mike and Scott, no business experience creating what is now um, one of the most valuable companies uh, in Australia, seeing both up close and from afar, I'd always sort of uh, gravitated towards those unimportant people in inverted commas who actually go on and, and do something. Before we get into some meaty questions about the startup ecosystem, A, where did the name and who come up with the name Startmate and what's the meaning, if, if there is some grand meaning or maybe not, and also Blackbird? Yeah, the, the name Startmate actually came from Mick Lubinskis, who at the time uh, was a founder of Polonizer with Phil Moore, and both have gone on to, to greater things um, post-Polonizer. Uh, the, the name Startmate was an analog to, you know, the Nike Just Do It. It was basically sort of just Startmate. You know, the, this artificial barrier in your mind of starting is what is preventing you from succeeding. And just give it a shot. Just go and do it. Don't talk about it. Just go and do it. So Mick was the the person who came up with uh, Startmate as we were throwing around different names, and that that's the one that uh, stuck amongst the initial group of people. Blackbird uh, comes from. Well, there's there's a couple of different explanations, um, and you can sort of choose your own um, 
uh, favorite or choose your favorite interpretation. One of them is Blackbird is the world's fastest fighter jet. So Lockheed yeah. Martin had for years, maybe even decades, spent billions or tens of billions of dollars trying to create the world's fastest fighter jet and had failed to do so. And it was a humongous company with lots of the most talented people with layers of management and so on, but they'd failed. And then there was a breakaway team, the Skunk Works team, that said, this is ridiculous. And uh, a small team actually went on to create the Blackbird. And uh, I think it's still even the the fastest plane today and it was really this idea that small teams can achieve something that big teams cannot people always think of the incumbent as the best placed person to win a market or a new market to hang on and and really that's not how the world works the world works through these uh, sort of small upstarts with nothing to lose and everything to gain and those dynamics of success maximization so first of all if the team succeeds it will succeed wildly they will be the most successful people in the world and then equally if they make no progress you know they will just fail miserably and the company will run out of money and they'll all need to go and get new jobs and and so on versus in a big company it's more this failure minimization device where uh if you don't try you won't fail. And if you won't fail, you won't lose your job. Uh, it doesn't matter if you succeed or not, because you know the, the, the consequence is just getting reassigned to another project or that there's no sort of, if you actually did succeed, you don't even get the credit, you don't get the success, you don't get the financial rewards um, or anything like that. So I think this idea that small teams will always be big teams is at the heart of Blackbird. The other interpretation is, uh, so if you've read the book, The Black Swan, the black swan is a negative financial event, so a, a low probability negative financial event. And the idea, you know, black swans are from Western Australia, that these rare creatures that appear is very uh, similar to the way that the startup world works. Obviously, they're uh, low probability positive financial events, um, but sort of people always miss the rare outlier. And that rare outlier accounts for, you know, the majority of returns. I think, you know, in the entire dot-com boom and bust, if you had invested an equal amount in every single internet company around 1999 or 1998, a single investment in Google would have paid back and generated profit more than every other loss uh, that happened during that carnage of a boom-bust cycle. So you could have invested in one company that would net out um, tens of thousands of other companies that lost everything. And really, you know, that's the way that the startup world works is there is a single company that accounts for the vast majority of returns and Blackbird being, you know, first of all, Black Swans being Australian. And so Blackbird being a version of those, but in a positive sense, a low probability positive um, outcome. And so, so, so you spent about a year or two at Startmate before, you know, launching Blackbird, according to your LinkedIn. In those roughly two years, what happened to make, or was it always the plan to launch eventually Blackbird? No, it wasn't. And really, I think the the only ambition for Startmate at the beginning was I had moved back to Australia. As I said, I'd met all of these great people here that were the equal or better of the people I'd met in the Bay Area in, in New York. I'd started to angel invest my own money. So I'd, I wanted to begin investing in early stage startups. And I'd sort of start on that path, but I didn't have much money. You'd call it like $25,000 for two startups per year. That was the kind of budget I was operating on at the time. And so the, the idea for Startmate was to 
bring together a group of people so that we could um, uh, invest in more startups at the same time. If we ran through batches, decision-making would get better more rapidly. Companies would get more value if they were a part of a cohort or a community. And so that was the, the, the sort of initial premise for Startmate, but it was run three months uh, of the year. Uh, during those three months, I would work two days a week on, on Startmate. And actually, I was launching another uh, startup at the time. But very quickly, I think, realized that this is what I truly loved to do. So one framework for that was if you you know, you go to high school, you make a bunch of friends. Um, you go to university, you make a bunch of friends. And after that, you don't really make a bunch more friends. And Startmate was really just a, another wave of friends that I had made. And that was really a clue, I think, to say that this is how I wanted to spend my life. And so for the two years before Blackbird and Startmate being a, almost a precursor to Blackbird, it was really that depth of relationship that I had formed with a bunch of the people that went through Startmate that said, you know, this is actually what I want to do with my life. And then secondly, um, just from a purely business point of view, as I said, there was this paradox. There were already successful companies in Australia, but no no one really paying attention to them uh, from an investor point of view. And so mm. from a, a startup idea point of view, a dramatic supply of awesome companies and a dramatic undersupply of people looking to invest in those companies. And so really Blackbird teaming up with Rick Baker and um, Bill Barty to form Blackbird it was, you know, the biggest, best idea for a, uh, a company that we all had because of, you know, how dramatically underserved the startup community in Australia was at the time. Mm. Can you give us a snapshot of what the landscape looked like in 2010? Yeah, there, there were successful companies. Um, the version of success uh, looks modest. I think Atlassian, you know, maybe had $50 million in revenue and they maybe had 100 or 200 people at the time, so it was sort of, there was a bunch of Series B, in inverted commas, level traction startups. There were a bunch of early stage um, founders, so maybe someone had raised the seed round and 10 people or, you know, somewhere between 20 and 50 people. There was also, as I said, a change in personality from the founders running those companies were all very product driven and they were all very technical. And they were all trying to be the best in the world. You know, Campaign Monitor was eking it out with uh, MailChimp and so on on the global stage. Big Commerce, Atlassian, Halfbrick Studios had just enjoyed some initial success in the iPhone App Store with Fruit Ninja. And Akinex and Redbubble were sort of growing very, very quickly as well. So there, I would say there was a bunch of early growth stage companies. But I would say in total, there was probably you know, 30 companies or 50 companies in Australia that had any level of commercial progress, a successful community, but it was still, you know, a really, really small group of people. And, but all, as I said, um, the starting of Startmate was a bunch of coffee meetings and it wasn't, I didn't convince anyone. I just surfaced this belief in all of them. I surfaced this agreement that, you know, they'd, they'd been thinking about something similar and it was almost like just giving them a way to say yes to that um, idea that was already in their head. Mm. And I think also there was a surfacing of, of belief in that they would have loved for this community and this program to exist when they had started their own companies. And so particularly amongst those founders um, who were the you know, only people that I spoke to, in building the initial mentor community, it was almost like a one coffee yes meeting because, again, they'd been thinking about this uh, already and I wasn't convincing them or educating them in any way. So Startmate into Blackbird and then the last decade or so, 
to up to today what, what what are some of the biggest movements or positive or negative that you've observed happen in the ecosystem that kind of you know the big broad jumps to get us up to where we are today what's changed over the last decade i, I would really frame it in the, the terms of ambition in the beginning people were focused on being the best in australia and now they are focused on being the best in the world where they were focused on exiting their companies after a couple of years like you know back in 2012 all investors and all startups all investors were telling startups and all startups had this you know silly idea of an exit strategy and they would have a slide in their pitch deck of when they would exit in five years and they predict the price that they would exit at to five decimal places and they would nominate the company that was going to acquire them at a specific uh, point in time in the future and it was really this almost like sad state of like if they did become successful they would sell which is you know almost like saying if you would have a great marriage what's your divorce strategy um, you know, it doesn't make sense um, if something is going well to not continue that and so i think the big change was globally ambitious and the big change was someone doing their life's work over a number of decades and so the fact that atlassian did not sell i think was a huge important turning point in the community recently as we're sort of recording this interview afterpay decided to um, sell to square a few months ago it was an incredible uh, journey for that company but i would argue that had they waited just uh, another decade or two you know the, again if you just keep compounding if you keep like it's all down to those generational companies and and uh, staying independent and if you give it enough time you'll be worth hundreds of billions of dollars or trillions of dollars and australia will have its version of Facebook or Google um, and enter into that same realm of a trillion dollar company. It's just the decision not to sell because if you're doing something that is really successful, you'll definitely get offers to you know sell for a hundred million dollars. You get offers to sell for five hundred million dollars, a billion dollars, ten billion dollars. You know the the list goes on, and it's really only those uh, founders uh, and companies who are doing their life's work who almost irrationally say no to those offers because they're very generous in the moment in time, but incredibly, you know, short-sighted in the, you know, hindsight of the future. And so I think people trying to be the best in the world and then people trying to build uh, a company over uh, their life and, and a number of decades, that's what really changed rather than, you know, trying to be the best in Australia and sell for $20 million after, you know, a couple of years. Yeah, you definitely put canva in that that category of doing their life's work yeah i think you know australia so far has produced three generational companies atlassian afterpay and canva i'm obviously very biased i i think you know canva could be the thoroughbred of australian business history it is the you know the father of our time it has a chance to grow into a trillion dollar plus company it has the chance to be a microsoft or google or facebook size um yeah company over the next uh, couple of decades and i think just how product driven they are how they have built the team and the culture at canva how it's still not even you know one decade old i think it, it has a a truly a special chance not to say it is um preordained or it, it will happen but i think it has a great chance of something um truly special and something that has not been seen in australian business history now, now that we're kind of caught up to to present day pretty much, what do you think, did we miss anything really important up to today? I think the other element that, that really laid the groundwork was 
the decision by Google to open up a local engineering office. So many people might know that Google Maps was invented and built in Sydney. Google acquired the company so that the, the team was in Sydney um, beforehand. Uh, but they also you know, build large, large parts of Google Chrome, large parts of other uh, Google products they build from an engineering team in, in Sydney. And then also there's a bunch of other global software companies that also started up local engineering and product offices. But I think sort of Google was the most important catalyst that provided a lot of the early talent to Canva, for example, and a whole host of other startups. So I think that was another important moment of, as well as this community of founders who had succeeded wanting to invest and help the next generation, you also had this Google office in Sydney that had attracted an incredibly smart uh, group of people that provided the, the technical talent for a whole host of startups after that. The other thing is that um, AWS, completely changed the ability of a company to get started. So used to require permission to start a company. And this is what sort of tied startups to Silicon Valley. Because you needed permission to, to start the company, because you needed to raise a round of capital to buy up servers and database software and you know rack space in a data center, you needed to you know have $5 million to start. So the only way that someone would give you $5 million is if, if you built a close personal relationship with them in Silicon Valley. And so you needed to be in Silicon Valley. So the idea of Amazon and um, AWS letting someone get started for $10,000, not $5 million, that allowed people to start wherever they were in the world. So not specifically Australia, um, but all around the world, people could just get started with their idea or with their product. And so I think also the launch of AWS on the technical side and then the launch of perhaps the iPhone app store on the customer acquisition side really changed the ability of a company to get built outside of Silicon Valley. And Australia has had its fair share of successes because of that huge change in the ability to start a company. From your perspective, and we're talking modern day here, like what, what are some of the biggest gaps that you see still in the Australian startup ecosystem? What are some of the areas we could improve on the most? I think, again, this is a snapshot that I have 100% belief that will get fixed and will get improved. If I rewind back, what were all the criticisms of starting a company in 2010, for example? The criticisms were you could perhaps hire, you know, some technical uh, people but as soon as you wanted to build and scale a technical team, you would need to build that in the Bay Area, uh, not in Australia. And as people just prove that you could build, you know, thousand person engineering teams in, in Sydney or Melbourne or wherever in Australia, the, the sort of current criticism is that we don't have the leaders, the executive talent to help those thousand person engineering teams or, you know, a couple thousand person companies scale into that Google or Facebook or Microsoft level of company. And beforehand, I think what was really unique was so Atlassian in doing that mainly built that level of talent in America, in, in the Bay Area. Mm. Whereas it, I think Canva stubbornly or um, wishfully uh, built the, the senior management in Australia. And they've attracted a whole host of awesome people who have relocated their life back to Sydney, Australia, from all over the world. They had no connection to Australia except for the the job opportunity that, that Canva presented them. And so I think that was beginning to play out. However, obviously with COVID, obviously with Australia's general attitude to 
travel at the present, perhaps that is more in danger of being able to, again, develop people internally into those senior managers. But you, you know, whenever you're doing that, you do need some level of imported talent and imported executive leadership. And perhaps that is probably the biggest risk area, at least currently with the way that COVID is affecting the, the community, that, that not being present, the importing of talent presents a, a, a risk for those rapidly growing companies. Drawing on your experience, you know, in being involved in the U.S. kind of ecosystem, uh, and by the way, ha- have you been involved in any other ecosystems around the world? As I said, I lived in New York yeah. for a little more than five years, um, from two thousand and three. Uh, so I saw the beginnings of the uh, New York ecosystem. It was still very uh, much the beginning, even when I I left. I'd spent a bunch of time in in the Bay Area, so and you know from when I was in the U.S. and then also ever since I started Startmate and and, and Blackbird have always you know been a regular visitor to the Bay Area outside of COVID, and so they're the the main sort of sets of observations that I've made, and obviously all of the experience in Australia. So the two part question: What do you see as like what are we doing really well? in Australia in, in terms of the startup ecosystem and and have you observed anything that, that makes us unique, like a competitive advantage that, that we have here that maybe you haven't observed in other ecosystems? Speaking at an ecosystem level, I always like to describe it as um, in the co- in the context of a you know the Olympics and Australia will win more than its fair share of gold medals um, in mm. all these different variety of events and it just requires those people to show the determination and the, the, the skill and the, the resilience and the day in, day out work to get to that Olympic standard in whatever pursuit that they uh, choose. Like it's more about the people. It's about so Australia doesn't have a competitive advantage in swimming, but, you know, Ariane Titmus and, you know, it's those personal stories that are the, the key and sort of culturally to support more and more of those stories, I think, is, is you know, anyone can do anything, basically. And so I think there's no competitive advantage in the ecosystem level, but Australia is full of super talented people with, you know, hopefully, given the ambition to, to take a swing, will always win, you know, more than our fair share of gold medals in, in, in whatever they choose to, to focus on. Amazing answer. I want to ask you the advice question. I ask everybody this. If a brand new founder came to you tomorrow... What one thing would you tell them? I think just do it. The number one thing that stops people is that they overthink it. So they they erect all of these artificial barriers in their mind. The idea isn't quite perfect. The situation's not quite perfect. The something else is not is not quite right. Um, it's just go and do it. And I think also the go and do it is keep it very very simple. It is only about the product and talking to customers. So build the product, talk to customers. Those are the only two things that you should be doing. You should not be concentrating on PR. You should not be talking to big partners. You should not you know, care about the 30 under 30 list. You should not <laughs> care about the, almost like this theatrical element of startups because it's easy to, yeah. easy to do. There's no need for a business plan. Like sort of at one extreme, you don't need to fall into this sort of perfect plan fallacy. I think you just need to get started. You just need to talk to customers and then you just need to build the product. And I think by keep it very simple, product and customers, and only do those two things, 
And, you know, what can you do today? There's nothing that should be stopping you. You should be able to, you know, stop listening to this and just go and do something. Uh, go and talk to a customer right now. Don't talk to people for advice. Talk to customers. I've got two more questions for you, Nikki. Do you have an unpopular opinion that, that you just firmly believe is, is truth, but no one else seems to be on the same page with you about in terms of startups and entrepreneurship? We, we talked a little bit about the hungry, not the proven. I don't think people even now look to invest in people with no business experience, um, for instance. The other one is that the idea that the investor needs to be the expert or the teacher I think that's actually a dangerous thing where if the investor knows more than the startup about whatever problem that they are solving, that is like a, a danger signal rather than a good signal. And people always sort of insert their ego into it of like, I will only invest in startups that I can help. Um, like the, the, the best startups need no help and the best startups will succeed anyway. And so you're inserting this artificial handicap onto the decision to, to say, could you help the startup or not? Doesn't doesn't matter. It's your ego. It's not it's not whether the um, uh, startup will ultimately succeed or not. So I think investing in people with no business experience, investing in things that you know nothing about. Again, all of the best investments we've made are where we are the the student, not the teacher, and that's always like a good test as to if something is fresh and new and. Um, interesting on some level if you already know it it's not new and so for something to be unique it needs to be new and uh again you know you're not trying to be the the expert so the last question isn't really a question it's more of i want to just give you a couple of minutes to talk about whatever is top of mind for you like like what do you what what keeps you awake i think you know our future in australia is really going to be determined by if we can create technology rather than if we can consume it. If we are only consumers of technology, if we're you know, using Google, we're using Facebook um, and complaining about how little tax those companies pay, that is a spiral downwards. If we can create technology, if Australia can produce products that change the lives of people all over the world and those are the best products globally, then Australia has a chance of continuing to rise up through the rankings of, of the world. And I think there's also just this network effect of ambition. So if you do something that is incredibly ambitious, it's actually more likely to succeed than uh, if something is, if you try to do something that is not as ambitious. Um, people always think if you sort of halve your ambition, you double your chances, where my opinion is that if you halve your ambition, you halve your chances. If you do something truly ambitious, it, it attracts all of the best people to work for you. And if all the best people work for you, um, all the best investors will want to invest at the best valuations. And there's a certain network effect to ambition such that by being ambitious, it makes the, the outcome more likely because all the best people want to want to work on ambitious things and want to make that ambition thing a reality. And so I think culturally in Australia, to encourage great ambition, to encourage people to do their life's work again, not to sell the company after five years after it's initially successful, but to let the ambitious idea compound away over their lifetime such that you know, you get the Atlassian, you get the Canva, you get the Westfield, which is, again, another life's work that was compounded over many decades. And I think culturally, if we think in that way of uh, global champions of creating products, not consuming products, then, you know, Australia is going to be a very successful country. That way of thinking is that what's part of what's contributed to the success of Blackbird, that, that you were so ambitious from day one? I think so. I, I think also... Um, 
it was about those outliers and not being afraid to embrace them. So again, if something succeeds, even as an investor, your first reaction is like, wow, it succeeded. Let's let's sell, mm. which is the wrong reaction. It should be let's buy. And mm. so, you know, we first invested $250,000 in Canva right at the beginning, but we've invested more than $270 million over Canva's life. We'd hope to invest even hundreds of millions of dollars more. And so I think making the business all about the blackbirds, the rare outliers, making it about building those relationships rather than subtracting from them if they are successful, I think that's always sort of guided us. And also just sharing your philosophy publicly, sharing the sort of belief that it's okay to be ambitious. I think, again, that sort of chemically reacts with the people who listen to that and decide to, you know, go and do, do a startup, go and, you know, aim higher and, and so on. So I think I almost view our role as hopefully re-raising people's ambition such that, again, it sort of chemically reacts with the people that hear it and then they go on to try something and that, that then goes on to inspire people to join them and to fund them and, Again, this is all a network effect of progress. I've really enjoyed this interview. Nikki, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I think just the opportunity to learn from people. I think people artificially constrain that to people that you meet. So one incredible thing is just the internet and it's uh, broadening of knowledge. You can learn from all of the best people in the world. So previously you could learn from the best people in the world through the the books and, and libraries of history, but just the internet is sort of a hundred X that. And if you listen to podcasts, you listen to um, presentations and read blogs, and you can actually learn a lot from people at their best. I think, you know, I've been given the opportunity to meet with a lot of awesome people in Silicon Valley. And almost um, if I compared listening to the podcast to having coffee with them, I often times learned more from the podcast because they were prepared they were sort of had clarified their thinking. They were, you know, charismatic and, and sort of pithy. And I think people underestimate just how much you can learn from people now that we have the internet and just how much knowledge and, you know, mentors are good for, you know, in-person sort of uh, one-to-one mentors are good for reflection and accountability. But just that, that first piece of the knowledge piece, you know, you can make anyone your mentor. And I've learned so much from, Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger or all of, you know, Peter Thiel, all of these people that I've you know, met Peter Thiel once, but I haven't met Warren Buffett, I haven't met Charlie Munger, but those people have just been so instrumental in the way that I think about the world that, again, everyone is given that opportunity now that there, there is the internet. So, again, just having a, a thirst for learning combined with the internet means anyone can achieve the heights that just wasn't possible even 20 years ago. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.